All right, please join me in the reading of the word from Mark chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Gal Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Fred. Well, if you are here for the first time, you've come on a great Sunday because today we are beginning a brand new sermon series. I'm excited to say that for 2022, we are going to journey through the Gospel of Mark. It's been many years since we've systematically gone through a Gospel, not since 2015, did we go through the Gospel of John, and given the fact that we spent a lot of time in the Old Testament last year, Pastor Lewis and I felt that now is as good a time as ever to go through this Gospel. Now, I do want to let you know right off the bat that we are not going to cover every single verse of Mark. Uh, in our desire to finish this series within this year, we're forced to leave out a few passages. But we are going to cover the majority of Mark, and so I want to give my apologies in advance if your favorite passage isn't covered. Well, with that being said, let me first share with you some distinctives about Mark. First, it's one of the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And of the four Gospels, it's the earliest written letter, and it's also the shortest letter. In fact, when you compare it to Luke's Gospel, it's almost half as short as Luke's. Why? Well, you'll notice that Mark has a tendency of focusing more on Jesus' actions rather than his teaching. He spends more of his time uh, describing what Jesus does rather than what Jesus says, and so that accounts for some of the brevity. Another distinctive about Mark is his love for the word immediately. It's found all over the place. In fact, it's found 40 times in the Gospel of Mark. 
Immediately, the Spirit drove Jesus into the wilderness. Immediately, they left their fishing nets. Immediately, they went up to Capernaum. As a result, there's this fast-paced nature to this gospel where the reader finds him or herself trying to catch up with Jesus and follow him. Now, who is Mark? Well, if you've read Acts and other New Testament letters, you'll see him as the John Mark, the same John Mark who was Paul's companion for a time, who at another point in his life was Barnabas's companion. But most relevantly, John Mark was Peter's disciple, who Peter calls a son and, and, and John Mark would accompany Peter in his ministry, his preaching minister ministry, and listen to all of Peter's stories and accounts of what Jesus did while he was on this earth. And so many scholars believe that what we have in this gospel is Mark's summary of everything Peter talked about concerning the life and ministry of Jesus. Now, who was Mark writing to? It's important to know the audience. Well, scholars believe that he is writing to Christians in Rome around 60 to 70 AD. And this is significant because in 64 AD, history tells us that a great fire broke out in Rome. Aided by strong winds, this fire ravaged the city for more than a week. And as Southern Californians, we are all too familiar with the devastating impact of fire and wind together. All in all, over 80% of Rome was damaged and destroyed by this great fire. And so what happened? Well, as you might expect, people began to point their fingers as they lost their homes, as they lost their livelihoods, as they lost their loved ones, they wanted someone to be held accountable. And so a lot of the Roman citizens began to point their fingers at the emperor Nero. Some even accused Nero of starting this fire. Others accused Nero of trying to impede their efforts to douse this fire. And so what does Nero do? Well, he does what every wise politician does. He finds a scapegoat. He points his finger at this religious cult who worship a man named Jesus, who refused to worship any of Rome's gods. And he says, they're the reason why this fire broke out. You see, our gods are punishing us for their lack of worship. And so Nero rounds up as many Christians as he can find, and he kills them. He dresses some of these Christians up in animal skins and lets wild dogs loose on them, we are told. Others, he dips in tar and lights them on fire and says, behold, the light of the world, mocking them. And still others, he fed to the lions in the Colosseum. And so this is the audience that Mark is writing to. He's writing to a group of Christians who are confused, scared, and tempted to leave their faith. And he can find no better way to strengthen and encourage them than by showing them who Jesus is and what he did. 
With that being said, let's dive into our passage, verses 1 through 11. Right off the bat, Mark's reputation for brevity and conciseness come to the fore because in the very first verse of Mark, he reveals his thesis for the entire book. He writes the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The beginning of the gospel, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. This is what this book is about. He writes this so that we might know that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. For those of you who are new to Christianity, you might have come here thinking and assuming that Christianity is ultimately about being a good person. That Christianity is really a form of moralism and ethics and virtue. It helps you become a better you. And certainly, Christianity does help you become a better you. But at its core, it's not about morality. Others of you, based on what you've read in, uh, uh, on the internet and seen in the media, you might think that Christianity is a political movement. It's a certain platform that people vote by. Now, there's no question that the Bible does shape our view of the world and government and justice. But at its core, Christianity is not a political movement. Still others of you might associate Christianity with community. The reason why you go to church is to find friends, to find community, to find a place to belong. And certainly Christianity does help you find community, but at its core, it's not about that. At its core, its foundation it's about the gospel of Jesus Christ, Jesus, the Son of God. Let me unpack the first word here for you, gospel. When they hear the word gospel, they often think of a genre of music. They think of B.B. and C.C. Winans, right, or Kirk Franklin. But the word gospel translated here comes from the Greek word euangelio, and it literally means good news. But when the Greeks use the word euangelio, it doesn't refer to any ordinary, mundane type of good news. You wouldn't hear a Roman person say, euangelio, it's Taco Tuesday today, right? No, they use this word for extraordinary circumstances. For example, the word euangelio appears on a transcript and an inscription dated back to 9 BC where it announces the birth of the emperor Octavian. That is good news. It's news of epic proportions. It shapes history. It changes society. A new emperor has been born. Euangelio. Well, Mark utilizes this word the same way to announce that something epic has occurred. Jesus has come, and he has come to change history as we know it. And indeed, Mark would be proven right. 
Though a lot of people try to scrub Jesus from history, we all know that B.C. means before Christ and A.D. means the year of our Lord. He changes history. But the Jews, they use the word euangelio a bit differently from the Greeks. For the Jews, euangelio had a much more historical, theologically rich meaning. For the Hebrew, when they saw this word, they were reminded of all the Old Testament prophecies that existed that announced a day where a Messiah would come to usher in God's salvation. That a Messiah will one day come who will usher in the kingdom of God, who will set the captives free, right every wrong, and rule as king with holiness, justice, and peace. That's what they thought of when they saw this word. And again, Mark uses it in that way. That's why he immediately quotes Isaiah after this. He is telling us, euangelio, good news, the promised Messiah has finally come, and his name is Jesus. And that's what this book is all about. It's to convince us and help us to proclaim with Mark, Jesus is the Christ. That's how the entire book is framed, in fact. The first half of Mark ends in chapter 8, verse 29, where Jesus asks Peter, Peter, who do you say that I am? And Peter responds, you are the Christ. The last half of Mark's gospel ends with another confession where after witnessing the death of Jesus on the cross, the centurion proclaims, surely this is the Son of God. And so in the beginning, middle, and end, you have three attestations, three professions that Jesus is the Messiah. He is the Christ. And that's what this book wants you to believe. Now you might be thinking, well, what's the big deal about Jesus being the Christ? Why is this such history-shaping, groundbreaking news, news that the church is trying to help everyone hear? Well, in our passage, we find three reasons why this gospel is so good, so groundbreaking. And let me share these three reasons with you all. First, this is good news because here in our passage, we see that Jesus has come to identify with sinners. He has come to identify with sinners, and we see this in his baptism. I want you to see that John's baptism is distinct and different from the church's baptism. Though you have the same method, they have different meanings. You see, John's baptism signified pending judgment, whereas the church's baptism signifies cleansing. You see, back in the Old Testament, water was often associated with 
the judgment of God. Where do we see God's judgment coming in the form of water? Noah's flood. Not only do we see it at Noah's flood, but we also see it at the Red Sea where, Israel's, or, where Pharaoh's armies drown in the Red Sea. We also saw it in the book of Jonah. As Jonah flees in his rebellion, he nearly dies in the sea. Another watery judgment. And so for the Hebrew, water was associated with judgment. And, and, and John seizes this usage and applies it and says, everyone, God's judgment is coming. We are told in verse 2 that John is the forerunner of Christ. He has come to prepare the way for Jesus. Well, the way he prepares the way is by proclaiming a message of judgment. You could say John is God's wake-up call for Israel. It's God's way of shaking Israel out of its slumber, out of its pride and spiritual blindness, helping Israel see, hey, the way you are living is not right, and you will be held accountable for your actions. Judgment is coming. And so John goes out and he proclaims this message of coming judgment and he, he urges the Israelites, we need to repent. We need to ask God for forgiveness. And the way they communicated this publicly was by getting baptized. It's their way of telling God and the world, we are worthy of judgment. God, forgive us for our sins. We have not lived rightly. You can say John's ministry is kind of like tilling is in a farm. You see, before a farmer scatters his seeds across the soil, he must first till the soil. To till means to break up the hardened, sun-baked earth with a hoe. You break up the earth, you turn over the soil, you make it soft and open for that seed to fall. And this is John's purpose here, to break up our heart and hearts by preaching a message of repentance and judgment. And that's what he does. But this is precisely why we're puzzled at Jesus' baptism. If John's baptism signified coming judgment, if it signified a desire for repentance, what is Jesus doing? I can imagine John's shock when Jesus enters the river and says, John, I want you to baptize me. You can imagine the confusion in John. On one hand, he doesn't want to disobey the Messiah. He is the Messiah. On the other hand, he knows that Jesus is sinless and righteous. You don't need to be baptized, Jesus. You have no sins to repent of. There is no judgment waiting for you. And yet Jesus insists, and John baptizes him. Why? Well, this is Jesus' way of announcing to the world, I have come to identify with sinners. 
I have come to identify with the sinful people. In fact, I have come to this earth not to execute God's judgment, but rather to be judged on behalf of my people. I have come not to pronounce punishment, but rather to be punished as I identify and carry the sins of my people. And so that's the first reason we find in our passage why this news is so good. Jesus, God's son, has come to take our punishment. His baptism here is a preview, a foreshadowing of the cross. Now there's another reason why the gospel is so good. After Jesus is baptized and he comes out of the water, something extraordinary happens. The heavens open up, the Father speaks, the Spirit descends and hovers over Christ. And the Father says, you are my beloved Son, in you I am well pleased. This is an extraordinary moment because it doesn't happen very often where all three persons of the Trinity appear in the Bible. All three persons of the Trinity appear and act. The Father speaks, the Son is baptized, the Spirit hovers. Here we're given a window, a sneak peek into the dynamic and drama of the Trinity. And what we see is absolutely beautiful. As the father declares his pleasure over his son, we get a window into the inner life of the Trinity, and what we behold is mutual affection, adoration, delight, glory, and joy. What we see is unblemished, unbroken, unashamed love. Of course, what we see is not an anomaly for our triune God. This is the way it's always been and it always will be. For eternity, they have been experiencing this type of perfect, unashamed love for one another. The core of their being is relational, communal love. It's who God is. God is love, declares John. And we see it on display at Jesus' baptism. And so when we see this picture, this dynamic of the Trinity, what we have here, my friends, is the goal of the gospel. What we have here is the reason why Jesus came to this earth. He came here so that you and I could one day experience and enter into that Trinitarian love. Has that ever happened to you when you were young? Perhaps you grew up in a dysfunctional family, broken family, and you went to a friend's house who had a healthy family and you join them for dinner and you're amazed at the laughter and the joy going on 
and you find yourself, oh, this is what a family looks like, a healthy one. Well, as we witness this amazing love transaction between the Trinity here at the baptism, God opens our eyes and helps us see, oh, this is what I was created for, to enjoy this type of love. If you think about it, this was our original design. You and I were not created for riches or recognition. We were not created for prizes and possessions. We were not created to amass as much uh, uh, property as possible. We were created for unbroken, unashamed love. And we see this in Genesis 1. A lot of scholars see an allusion here at Jesus' baptism to Genesis 1. Why? Because in Genesis 1, you also see three persons of the Trinity working together. God the Father speaks, God the Son creates, according to John 1.1, and God the Spirit hovers over the waters in Genesis 1 verse 2. You have all three persons of the Trinity working harmoniously together, and you also have a declaration of love and affirmation. At the end of the sixth day, the Father declares, this is very good, and he's referring to the creation of man. And so we see how in the beginning, Adam and Eve enjoyed the delight and pleasure of God. That what Jesus heard at his baptism was what Adam heard in his holy condition. He enjoyed the pleasure and delight of God. He heard the Father tell him, you are very good. You are my beloved son. This explains why you and I crave affection, and affirmation. This explains why we work and toil so hard in school, at the office, and at home. We want to do well in school so that someone could say, you are good. We spend long hours at the office so that someone can tell us, you are good. Good, I am pleased with you. We drive our kids around all over Irvine, all kinds of extracurriculars, because one day we want our kids to say, you are good. We are affirmation addicts. Why? It's because it's what we were created for. This deep longing we have for recognition and affirmation can be traced all the way back to the garden to what Adam lost. We were created for affirmation and affection, but unfortunately, Adam lost it all by rebelling and sinning against God. And ever since the fall, we've been chasing after things to fill that affirmation void in our hearts. But here, Jesus comes and he gives us a window into 
what a perfect relationship looks like where you are fully known and fully loved. And he says, this is why I'm here, to invite you into that circle, to invite you into that drama. Here is my home, and I want you to come in and participate. I want you, too, to experience the love I have experienced all of my existence. This is what I want for you. This leads us to the third and final reason why the gospel is so good. What I love about this baptism scene is that not only do we see Jesus identifying with sinners as he undergoes the baptism, but we also see Jesus inviting us to identify with him as the Son of God. You see, what struck me about this scene is how God the Father gushes over Jesus even before Jesus began his earthly ministry. Jesus has yet to preach his first sermon, perform his first miracle, go head-to-head with Satan in the wilderness. He hasn't done anything yet, and yet here we have God gushing over Jesus. In you, I am well pleased. What we have here is a picture of a gospel dynamic. What we have here is a distinctive of Christianity. You see, religion tells you that you must work hard and perform well if you want to get God's love. But here the gospel says, even before you perform or work, God loves you first. Religion says that you have to obey if you want God to love you. But the gospel says even before you obey, in fact, while you were disobeying, God loves you. In Christianity, God's love is not dangled ahead of us like a carrot that we constantly grasp after and try to chase and try to prove ourselves to be worthy of God's love. No, in Christianity, God's love comes to us at the very beginning. It rescues us, shapes us, forms us, and claims us as his own. And we live out of that reality. Just as God tells Jesus, you are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased, he says that to us who believe and rest in Jesus, even before we do anything. John 1 verse 12 declares, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Last week, Pastor Stephen Cooper gave us the image of Jesus hovering over our homes as our Passover lamb and said, if you meditate on that, how is that going to impact you? How is that going to change you knowing that Jesus hovers over your home? Well, I want you to do the same. Imagine every morning you start your day reciting, believing, Resting in God's declaration, you are my beloved son, you are my beloved daughter, in you I am well pleased. 
begin your day, end your day with that, resting in that, trusting in that, how is that going to shape you? It's going to have a profound impact. We won't find ourselves longing for other people's acceptance and approval. We won't find ourselves sensitive and touchy to people's disapproval. We won't be sacrificing our lives at the altar of school and work or family. Why? Because our center, our cups have already been filled with God's love. It will have a dramatic impact. Now do you see why Mark says this is good news? Life-changing, history-altering news? Jesus has come. He is the Messiah, and he has come to take on our judgment. He has come to invite us into the happiness of the Trinity. He has come to help us identify with him as children of God. Dear friends, though the John the Baptist is not alive today, I do believe the Holy Spirit has continued his work of tilling hearts. The Spirit continues to convict us and break up hardened ground in our hearts. And perhaps this morning, you are here feeling a measure of burden, weight, fear, anger, grief, anxiety, worry. Perhaps the soil in your heart is being stirred up. Well, I'm here to tell you, don't let that work go to waste. The Spirit is breaking up your heart so that you might receive the gift of Christ. Hear Jesus' invitation to trade his life with yours to bear your judgment, to give you his righteousness, to participate in Trinitarian love. Don't just hear it, receive it, accept it, rest in it, rejoice in it, worship in it, bask in it. That's what God invites us to do this morning. And I pray that all of us will take advantage of that offer and leave this place enriched, comforted, encouraged, and empowered. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we we confess that sometimes we have a hard time really believing this good news. It seems too good to be true. And yet, Lord, we know that it is true, it is real. And so, Lord, would you, would you cast away our unbelieving hearts and enable us, O oh Lord, to behold Christ just as Mark beheld Christ. That with Peter, with the centurion, we will be able to say, you are the Christ, the Son of God.
Lord, we receive this gift this morning. We rest in this gift. We rejoice in this gift. May this gift fall on fertile soil and produce a rich harvest of righteousness. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.